The National Archives is more than just a bunch of warehouses filled with old paper. Archiving and managing records is a profession unto itself, and now the Archives National Historical Publications and Records Commission has established a new leadership institute at the University of Virginia. Here with the details, University Archivist Brenda Gunn. Ms. Gunn, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here. And the Commission's Director for Access Programs, Nancy Melly. Ms. Melly, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. How are you? All right. And Nancy, let's begin with just a little bit of background on the National Historical Publications and Records Commission, a unit of the archives. What's that all about? Well, the commission was actually founded at the same time as the archives back in 1934, but didn't really do anything really until the early 50s when someone handed President Truman a copy of the paper's And he wrote a note saying, this is really good stuff. We should encourage this. The commission then started meeting regularly and endorsing documentary editions. Documentary editions are publications of writings by people with contextual annotations and explanatory essays and something that historians like to do. Got it. So a lot of these things don't have multiple copies or many, many multiple copies, but there might be one more that has a note on the side and then you'd want that. Right. If you want to take a good look at actually what documentary editions might look like in a digital age, Founders Online is a great place to start. Okay. Well, we will certainly do that. I want to get to the University of Virginia and there is now a new center there. Ms. Gunn, tell us what's going on there. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to do it. And it's good to be with Nancy because she and I were in Archives Leadership Cohort together in, well, we won't tell the date, will we, Nancy? But it was in the earlier days of the Institute. But it was after Harry Truman, though. It was. It was after (laughs) Harry Truman, quite a bit, actually, after Truman. But um, So the University of Virginia will be the host of the Archives Leadership Institute in its next iteration. There's been the original institute, which was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Then it moved to Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, then to Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, and then most recently to Purdue University. So we're the fifth iteration of what I think is a growing tradition in investment in leadership in the profession that NHPRC has made. And we're real appreciative, obviously, of NHPRC's support for University of Virginia's iteration. And what happens at these leadership institutes, the one you have now, and how does it support Mm -hmm. the mission of the National Archives? Well, we'll have 25 archivists or memory workers join us here in Charlottesville, and we'll be talking about big picture issues in the archival field. And so in that respect, it supports NHPRC's mission as NHPRC is very invested from the beginning, as Nancy said, in the archival record and good stewardship. And that's what the memory workers and archivists who will come to Charlottesville and who've been a part of ALI from the beginning what we're doing. We're working in various situations, university archives, government archives, state, local records, museum settings. So we're spread out all over the U.S. and coming at it from a variety of different situations. So we're looking forward to having 25 more memory workers here in Charlottesville. And we'll be discussing things like responsible stewardship 
in partnerships with community members and community archives. We'll be looking at, of course, the individual, what self-knowledge and growth, you know, who you are as a leader and how your capacity can be built over time. And we'll talk about organizational leadership through a five-day intensive experience. All right. We're speaking with Brenda Gunn. She's an archivist at the University of Virginia and with Nancy Melly, Director for Access Programs at the Archives National Historical Publications and Records Commission. And just quickly, this is a residence program for that period of time, or is this something that runs on and on throughout the year? It's a residence program. We're inviting 25 individuals to leave their homes wherever they are across the U.S. and descend on Charlottesville. They'll be living in probably one of the newer dormitories, residence halls here on the campus of the University of Virginia, and we'll walk to class every day, Monday through Friday, which will probably be in the Special Collections Library. And we'll have a set curriculum for the week, and that'll include some interaction with faculty. It'll include conversations and discussions with our steering committee. We even have plans to have some peer mentoring and peer cohort created experiential learning. But we also are going to get off campus and go out into the community. Yeah, well, it's a nice mm-hmm. town down there, and work, yes, there are lots yes. of worse places to spend five days than in <laughs> and around true. Charlottesville. Nancy, will some federal people be attending also, or are these people from state and local archives and so on? There will be potentially federal attendees, federal archivists who attend. From what I can remember of the Institute statistics, there have been one or two federal attendees in each cohort. So... We're talking about somewhere between 15 and 20 federal archivists who have gone through the program. One of the things that I think we find useful at NHPRC is that we're helping archivists develop different muscles. So archivists know how to be archivists, but they don't necessarily know how to be managers or supervisors or leaders in the profession. Something like, I want to say, six or seven out of the last 10 presidents of the Society of American Archivists, our national professional organization, have been graduates of ALI. Interesting. And by the way, can someone define the term memory worker? I confess I've never heard that term. <laughs> it's a, I think, a collective noun for archivists, records managers, curators, people who work in the library, archives, and museum sector. So people who make sure we don't forget, and if we do, we have a place to look it up. Yeah, I think it's really, it's an interesting term to me, and it's relatively new, and we want it to be inclusive of the program. Nancy knows that the intention is to bring in people who work in a variety of settings, and not everyone identifies at specifically as an archivist, although they may be doing archival work. So we use the term memory worker as more of an inclusive term and to make sure that, you know, as many people can see themselves in this program as possible. And to the question about will there be federal archivists there, we certainly hope so. I mean, we intend to advertise ALI and this next iteration as widely as possible. And the cohorts really work when you have a diverse group of people from different settings, different parts of the country. 
And aside from whether presidents or ex-presidents should store archival records in garages <laughs> or chandeliered bathrooms, what are some of the big issues in archiving now these days? I mean, what kinds of things will you all discuss down there? I think we're going to really focus on the archivist and archives in our place. And, and what I mean by that is we're going to use the University of Virginia's built environment the Rotunda and the Academical Village and some of the events that have happened here over the last five, six years to talk about leadership in terms of some really tough subjects. You know, a history of enslavement, that's certainly something that the University of Virginia continues to grapple with. And it doesn't matter if you're at a institute of higher education or a museum or a corporation, you probably have some history to deal with. And so one of the things I think we're going to make sure we discuss with the cohort is narrative corrections. How do you be truthful about your organization's history? And as we like to say, as Elaine Westbrook, who is an esteemed leader of the Cornell University Library, she said, the receipts are in the archives. And I love that quote because the documentation for some of our, you know, events, big events in the country's history for small events in local history, whatever, the receipts are in the archives. That evidence is there and that's what we're here to steward. But other things that we'll be talking about is also relationship building and trust building. One of the big topics in the archival field right now has to do with community archives, such as you can consider indigenous archives and Native American tribes. And we'll be talking about the University of Virginia's growing relationship with some of the Virginia Indian tribes and their archival work. All right. Uh, Nancy, anything to add? Again, the big trends in archiving. I agree with Brenda. The community-driven archives is a very big trend. Making sure that the entirety of our constituencies see themselves in the archival record, whether that is doing expanded description of records so that they are more easily identified as coming from the community or affecting the community, or whether it is actually engaging the community in contributing records to the archives so that they can be preserved for the long term. Another trend that I see coming up fairly frequently is, and I don't know the best term for this, Brenda, you actually probably know that, know more about this than I do, is trauma-related collections. How we respectfully present material that was created out of trauma, but still make it available as best we can. Right. Trauma-informed archival practice, it is a very, very big thing, and we do have that on the agenda for sure. And it's not, when we think about trauma-informed practice, we're not just thinking about our researchers who come into the reading room. We definitely are thinking about them and their responses to some potentially difficult subject matter in the materials they're, they're looking at. But we're also thinking about our memory workers, our archivists, and our exhibition curators who may be dealing with the same difficult information as they 
process a collection and they do description or they're preparing an exhibition. So that's, yes, that's definitely going to be on the agenda for the week. Sounds like an exciting field, even more than I realized at the start here. Brenda Gunn is an archivist at the University of Virginia. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. And Nancy Melly is Director for Access Programs at the National Historical Publications and Records Commission of the National Archives. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Archive the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. 
it's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
at the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way that's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.